Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's podcast for Christ Followers Bible Study, we're in the book of Acts, we're in chapter 3, and we're starting at verse 19. And Mark tells us things are really heating up here. I look forward to this uh, time today in our study. Let's first open with a word of prayer. Leslie, would you open this, please? Sure. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. Uh, thank you for allowing us to know more about your precious word and the uh, finished work of Christ. And I pray that we'll see our need to to hear these words and apply them and do what's necessary to pursue the truth and live it. And we thank you for this opportunity in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Amen. <clears throat> Hi, Mark. Right. Good evening. It's good to be back with everyone. We have uh, begun a look at the book of Acts, a continuation of the book of Luke, and noticing how that it is systematically presenting the fulfillment of every prophecy relating to the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. And Acts 1 had some key points that are often overlooked uh, regarding that point about how that Jesus spent 40 days teaching his disciples the true nature of the kingdom of God. And they understood before he, his final ascension that, that he was restoring the kingdom. He was the king. He'd been anointed. And he was restoring the kingdom to Israel at that time. And then we, we uh, talked a lot about the pivotal events that took place on the Feast of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And about 3,000 Judeans were added to the 120 or so disciples uh, there at the day of Pentecost. And, and then just shortly after that, we have the events here of Acts chapter 3, where Peter and John are going up to the Temple Mount at the time of the afternoon sacrifice and prayers about 3 p.m. And there they came across a lame man who was there at the gate between the the huge temple mount that Herod the Great had built and the court of the women. It was the boundary beyond which no Gentile could pass or anyone ceremonially unclean. And it was probably the choice spot in town for a beggar to sit because you had all the faithful 
going in through that gate twice a day on just an ordinary day. And on the feast weekends, you would have had millions of uh, Judeans from all over the world uh, going through that gate. And he'd have apparently been there for a long, long time. And people knew him by sight, even if, if whether they'd given him money or hadn't given him money, they all knew who he was and that he certainly wasn't faking his uh, paralysis or lameness. And we saw in the beginning of chapter 3 how that uh, Peter and John told him, well, Peter said, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And there's a there's an old joke that Thomas Aquinas was called in before the Pope who was counting stacks of gold coins and the Pope said, you see, Thomas, it can no longer be said of the church, gold and silver, I have none. And Thomas replied, true, holy father, but it can also not be said by the church in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. <laughs> so anyway, that's just a little free anecdote <clears throat> uh, there from the, the Middle Ages there. So anyway, this was a, this was an amazing occurrence here, which would have made a profound impact on virtually every Judean who observed uh, prayers at the temple because they all would have known this beggar. And they went into the temple, you know, for the time of prayer. And then in this paragraph that we are in now, Peter and John come out with this man still hanging on to them. They come out of the uh, the inner courtyards back into the into the great giant uh, temple mount expanse that Herod the Great had built and go back to the east where Solomon's porch extended uh, all the way from the north to the south, we believe, um, on this expanded temple mount. But it wasn't in the sacred precincts of the temple uh, proper. So anyone could go there under the portico, this huge colonnade uh, covered area. And that's the area that they went to, and the huge crowd uh, gathers. And so Peter has started off uh, asking, you know, why why are you amazed? You all are, you know, you're basically aware of the things that Jesus did uh, in the flesh when he was here amongst us. And, you know, this is, you know, basically a continuation of those things. And he begins to address them using formal uh, language from the Hebrew scriptures and accuses them all of murdering the Messiah. And a uh, very ironic thing there uh, in verse 14, you have denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, killed the Prince of Life, <laughs> whereof we are all witnesses. So, it's it's a contrast here that the creator God you killed and you asked for a murderer to be released. So uh, some irony there, but also a, a harsh accusation. And we pointed out, I think last time, that in the law of Moses there was no sacrifice to take away the guilt of murder. So they... We're in a tight spot here. God had raised the Prince of Life from the dead, and Peter 
you know, claimed to be a witness of that. The fact that he had this amazing power of God to heal a man lame from birth was confirmation of his statement that he had seen Jesus raised from the dead. And he, picking up here in verse 16, it says that confidence in his name has his name made, uh, by confidence in his name, has his name made this man strong. So this is, of course, the authority of Christ. And I also believe that there's a, a secondary sense of the family of God taking the name of Christ, as we do in the name Christian. Uh, now, those who are in Christ bear his name and have confidence, absolute confidence in his power. So it's not necessarily, it's not the faith of the crippled man, but it is the, it is the confidence that Christ gives to his uh, family, his new body, his disciples, to, that gives them the power to do these kind of things. But then in verse 17, Peter gives them a way out by letting them know that he knows that they did this horrible, evil crime in ignorance, as also did your rulers. Peter's probably being a little overly magnanimous. Uh, they're giving the rulers of Judea any shadow of a doubt because they were a pretty wicked bunch, although there were a few good ones apparently mixed in with them. And then uh, the key verse 18 the things which God foreshadowed by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ should suffer, he thus fulfilled. And we pointed out that the foundation of dispensationalism is that the suffering and death of the Christ was an unforeseen occurrence that God did not know about and that when it happened, it postponed all of God's plan to restore Israel. And that's not what Peter says at all. He says that this was foreshown through the mouths of all of the prophets, and it has been fulfilled, which doesn't leave any room for a second future fulfillment, as our dispensational friends must have to keep their mythology alive. So this would be a good point here to take any uh, comments on the first part of Peter's address here, down through verse 18. No comments? Oh, here we go. Leslie? Oh, just uh, verse 18. Uh, this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. It was fulfilled through Christ. Right. But it, which would seem simple, except for the confusion, which is modern-day dispensationalism, which has got the whole country um, all confused here and fouled up. Chuck had mentioned some uh, Schofield notes, but I guess those are, are those a little bit later in the chapter? Uh, yeah, I think those notes are really on point, but the, uh, but they, they specifically point to verses 20 and 21. Okay. Well, we'll, so, we'll talk about them here in a few minutes. Okay, so we this does seem very clear, and uh, but these things which God before had shown by the mouth of all His prophets that Christ should suffer, He has so fulfilled. Uh, seems clear. Past tense. Yep. Yeah. Let's uh, 
let's read 19 down through the end of chapter 3, and we may bounce back into verse 18 if necessary. Okay. Okay. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many have foretold these days, and you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. All right, thank you very much. Now, some months ago, we went through the book of Daniel, which is one of the clearest of the prophets in regard to God's timetable for accomplishing his work of redemption. And the prophecy of weeks in Daniel 9 is what Peter is alluding to here when he's talking about your sins being blotted out there in verse 19. Repentance uh, is called for just like it was in chapter 2 earlier on the day of Pentecost, a a complete change of direction so that your sins may be blotted out. Under the law of Moses, their sins could not be eradicated. In Daniel 9, verse 24, Daniel was told by the angel, Seventy weeks are decreed upon your people and your holy city to finish transgression to make an end to sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. And now what have we already learned in Acts about the time frame of the anointing of Christ as king? Well, we we saw in uh, 2, verse 36, Peter says, let the whole house of Israel know assuredly that God has made him Lord and Christ. Christ means the anointed one. And here, you know, the timing of the of blotting out sin is the time of the anointing of the Holy One. So, yeah. you see, so this blotting out sins, that seems, you know, common Bible language to us. But to them, this was something that wasn't talked about much in the Hebrew Scriptures other than there in Daniel 9. There might be another place, but I'm not familiar with where it might be. All they could do was keep butchering innocent animals every year to carry their sins forward until the Messiah could come to blot them out. And so all of Israel was looking forward to that time as the hope of Israel. And the reestablishment of David's line as as king and the restoration of all of Israel. 
not just the tiny remnant which the Judean people represented uh, there in the first century. So this season of refreshing is tied into this idea of blotting out sins, which is tied back to Daniel chapter 9. Now this, this word seasons of refreshing in verse 19, that is a Greek word which I cannot pronounce, anapsixis. And it means literally a recovery of breath or a revival. So if someone's not breathing, what are they? Dead. 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 Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) So you have to get their breath back uh, for them to be alive. So this this season of refreshing is, is a season of revival or recovery of breath. It's really talking about making them alive again, and and it really is going back to Ezekiel 37, which I think we've talked about in several of the of these studies so far. The Valley of Dry Bones, where God has the Son of Man, Ezekiel, who is uh, very much a a type of Christ, who's also called the Son of Man, to preach to these dead bones and to have the Spirit of the Lord come from the four corners of the earth to breathe life into these bones. And so this word, seasons of refreshing, is this breath of life, a recovery of breath to the nation, which is basically spiritually dead at this time. And that he may send the Christ... Now, Christ is there. He's living inside all of the disciples. But this is referring to the parousia, the manifestation of Christ again, which would signal the end of physical Israel. Now, we've said that we can categorize uh, the vain events in Acts with four Ps, preaching, persecution, power, and parousia. And all of these are tied in with this speech right here. We saw we, it started with the amazing power of God to heal a man lame from birth. Then we get the preaching. Then we get the, the, uh, the imminent threat of, of Christ's return. And then we'll get the persecution actually in chapter 4. <laughs> but anyway, they're all right here at, at this time. It's a time of rejuvenation for Israel, but it's also a time of great judgment. And this is not unique. We've pointed out that this is the story of all of God's great acts of deliverance in the Bible, such as bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. Uh, It involved all the plagues and then the great flood where the whole army of Egypt was utterly destroyed by the Red Sea. Uh, The flood of Noah is an act of deliverance to Noah's family, but it's an act of great judgment on all of the uh, wicked people of the world who would drag Noah down to their level. So it it shouldn't really surprise us, but it's definitely the two ideas of deliverance and judgment are mixed in here in Peter's speech. Mark, maybe this is the appropriate time. Cyrus Schofield, back in in, uh, 1908, uh, before there was a state of Israel, about 35 or 40 years before there was a state of Israel, I guess, it would be 40, almost exactly 40 years before there was a state of Israel, wrote his Schofield Reference Bible, 
And in it, he interpreted verses 20 and 21 to be specifically referring to the uh, return of national Israel to the scene. And he was speaking, he seems to be pretty clearly talking about the Israeli state. So I might read these verses to you so we could discuss them, uh, these interpretations from the uh, original 1909 Scofield Reference Bible. In verse 20, which, uh, which reads, And so he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you. Then Scofield adds this note. The appeal here is national to the Jewish people as such. So he brings the Jewish people into this. Not individuals, as in Peter's first sermon in Acts 2, there those who were pricked in the heart were exhorted to save themselves from among the up-toward nations. The up-toward nations. He uses that quaint term, up-toward nations. Here the whole people is addressed, meaning um, all of the physical state of Israel, I guess. And the promise to national repentance is a national deliverance. So he's talking about a national there was no state of Israel at that time, but he's, he's talking about as though there was. That's to be restored. Then he says, and he shall send, he quotes, he shall send Jesus Christ, end quote, to bring in the times which the prophet has foretold, referring to Acts 2, 14. The official answer was the imprisonment of the apostles and the inhibition to preach so fulfilled. Thus says Schofield and 199, which the language in 1999 is is a little different and kind of hard to cope with. But I'm confused by this because first he says this is all about the national deliverance of a state of Israel. And then at the end he says the official answer was the imprisonment of the apostles and the inhibition to preach so fulfilled. Where is he wrong? The distinction, even in 1908, is, is arbitrary and artificial because as we noted in Acts 2.36, Peter there addresses the whole house of Israel. Okay, so he does call for them individually to come out of physical Israel and to be saved, to save themselves from this crooked and perverse generation, which is a lot stronger language than Schofield's untoward, as Chuck has already noted. So I do find this distinction between Acts 2 and 3 to be Uh, very arbitrary and artificially contrived in order to prop up the dispensational timeline. And again, it totally ignores the foundation of Acts chapter 1, where the apostles had been taught by Jesus the true nature of the restoration of the kingdom and understood that it was the time to uh, restore the kingdom because the king had been anointed. So that's my initial comment to his remarks there on Acts 3, verse 20. Now he goes on in uh, in discussing verse 21 and refers back to the so-called Palestinian covenant, which is found in Deuteronomy 1.9, and it talks about the restoration of the theocracy under David as the Palestinian covenant. That's kind of an embarrassment to modern dispensationalists because they say there never was a state of Palestine. And Schofield kind of says that there was a Palestine that could be regarded as a state, 
which resulted in the Palestinian Covenant in Deuteronomy. But again, the idea put forward here is the restoration of the theocracy under David. So he says, verse 20 predicts that, that the restoration of David's theocracy in a physical state of Israel. And I guess the thing I want to ask here, Mark, it seems to me in reading the language of these, it seems to me that the Zionist movement was already influencing Schofield back in 1908 to put the state of Israel back into the Bible and to actually write words that created a physical state of Israel where, as you've explained, there is only a spiritual state referred to by Christ and Peter in in the book of Acts. And so we've said for a long time that there's powerful evidence that the Schofield Reference Bible and the people that followed him seem to have been working for the efforts of the then only 13-year-old Zionist movement, which was busily campaigning for a state of Israel. And I believe that state was actually provided by the British approximately nine years after Schofield wrote his Bible. Yeah, 1917, I believe. So that would be, yeah, yeah, 9 and 9 is 18, I think. So maybe I'm out of line bringing up a remark here about these writings of Schofield at the time would almost be custom-made by the Zionist movement aimed at, already in 1980, aimed at creating a physical state by taking the nation of Palestine and that... uh, Schofield created this notion of a Palestinian covenant, creating a footnote in the book of Deuteronomy that seemed to say that David would be restored physically on a physical kingdom in Palestine. If I'm yes. addressing, you can just jump over this. But your comment or the comment from the from the uh, group would be very interesting here to me. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people you must listen to everything he tells you anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people in other words God takes listening very seriously we need to listen to what God tells us mm-hmm. to what are you you're surely not saying that we should listen to what God what Jesus says and not what Schofield says <laughs> I would prefer to follow Jesus, uh, that's where I go to heaven, not not with uh, Schofield. <laughs> okay. The Deuteronomy 30 passage that Schofield refers to is the prediction of the future regathering of Israel. He says that after all these curses and blessings have come upon you, Yahweh your God will turn your captivity and have compassion on you and will return and gather you from all the peoples where Yahweh your God has scattered you. If any of your outcasts be in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there will Yahweh thy God gather you, and from thence will he fetch you, and he will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, he will do you good, etc., etc. So this is one of the prophecies of the regathering of Israel, which is occurring right here in Acts chapter 2 and 3. But Again, the the dispensationalists refuse to accept the concept of a spiritual Israel, and that includes the spiritual land of Israel. You see, sometimes Israel, it's represented different ways in the prophets. Sometimes it's represented as the land, the promised land, 
the land across Jordan. Sometimes it's represented as the city of Jerusalem. Sometimes it's represented just as Mount Zion within Mm -hmm. Jerusalem. And sometimes it's represented just as the temple on top of Mount Zion in Jerusalem in the land. But in God's mind, all of these are talking about the same thing. The, the spiritual recreation of Israel from the imperfect harlot bride that she was as a physical nation into a absolutely pure and lovely spiritual bride that would be God's great work of recreation or the new creation or the new birth as as we sometimes refer to it. So they're they're using you know, totally different definitions and totally different interpretations of these prophecies to, again, point towards this physical restoration of the physical land, the physical city of Jerusalem, the physical Mount Zion, and the physical temple on Mount Zion, and the physical body of Jesus sitting on the throne on Mount Zion. So they require a literal interpretation of all of these things, which makes it virtually impossible to have any discussion with uh, any of them at all. But we can prove, you know, many different ways that these were intended to be interpreted uh, spiritually, as when Paul explains the use of types in some of his letters, how that a type is a physical event in the Hebrew scriptures that has a spiritual fulfillment in the new age. And the spiritual is always more important than the original physical type or shadow. He describes all of the Sabbaths and the feast days as shadows of the gospel. And he he basically says anyone that tries to go back to these physical observations of the law is cursed and will be utterly destroyed throughout all of his writings. The whole letter to the Hebrews is a demonstration of the superiority of the spiritual new covenant to the carnal old law and the old ceremonies and and days like that. So, I mean, we'll we'll continue to look for these things as we go through, but it just, you know, this was something new foisted upon Christians in the 1850s, 60s, 70s, whenever whenever it was started by uh, Darby, Schofield's predecessor. I mean, this was something new that no one had ever ever imagined or thought of before that you would interpret these prophecies physically instead of spiritually as all of these writings constantly are pointing towards. Thanks, Mark. Now, in verse 21, we have this word, uh, restoration. Now, this this word, and Schofield's kind enough to point this out to us, it only occurs here and in Acts 1-6, where Peter or, the, or all of the disciples said, do you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And so here's Peter using this exact word that doesn't appear anywhere else, the restoration of all things. So the all things in his mind obviously involves the kingdom to Israel, restoring the kingdom to Israel here in verse 21. And and again, this is unlike what Schofield says, that this wasn't even mentioned in Acts 2. It's constantly 
an undercurrent in all of these speeches in the book of Acts. The fulfillment of Deuteronomy 30, the regathering of Israel in their last days from all the nations of the world into which they had all been uh, scattered. So we talked about uh, seasons of revival or refreshing or a new breath of life coming from the presence of, of the Lord in verse 20 or verse 19 rather. And then here in verse 21, the heaven must receive Jesus until the times of restoration of all things. So his physical manifestation to the Judean nation would be the culmination of this restoration, which is exactly what we learned back in Daniel 9 with the 70th week, that everything would come together, you know, the 70th week, the the Messiah would be cut off at the end of the 69th or beginning of the 70th week, and at the end of the 70th week, an end would be made to sin. Uh, the transgression of the Judean people would never happen again <laughs> because they would be gone, and, you know, there would be life and the cause, the, the need for vision and uh, that's, that's and signs. That's Mark, uh, that the Jewish people would never suffer persecution again. Is that what is that what this is saying? Because of course it, that would deny the, the the great Holocaust is so much a part of Jewish religion today that they were of course persecuted in almost a religious way. And as I as I read this, I'm just flabbergasted that these people who stole this piece of land in 1948 from someone else were so clever as to go into our Bible and pick the name for their land right out of our Bible as the most venerated word in the old prophecies and one that was used so commonly by Bible writers of the 19th and 20th century, Israel, everything Israel. So it would be like naming your son John and saying that you're entitled to the Temple Mount. Or something, or, or the yeah, Isle of Patmos. <laughs> yeah, in a sense, I, I don't know if Daniel, you know, addressed persecution per such, but he he specifically addressed that the sin of the Judean people would come to a screeching halt, and of course that's because they were utterly wiped out as a nation there at his appearance. Okay, so the word was sin. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Now, yeah, if we if we skip over to Hebrews, which Hopefully we'll get a chance to us to look at some of these sessions. Abraham, there it was told that he, you know, was looking for a land. He became a sojourner in the land of promise, as in a land not his own, dwelling in tents. The heirs, he looked for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Again, a dispensationalist can interpret that as a physical city. But the architect of this city is God, and it's really jumping up to the spiritual plane. If we skip down a few verses, let's see where should I pick this up. Well, we'll just start verse 13. They, these all died in faith, these heroes of faith that are listed in Hebrews 11. They all died in faith, or according to faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. 
They that say such things make it known that they are seeking a country of their own. If indeed they had been mindful of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better country that is heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed of them to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And so from the context, what type of city would you think this is? Spiritual. Heavenly. It's a heavenly. Yeah, it's it's a heavenly city that's in a heavenly country. So, I mean, it's Mm -hmm. there it is in black and white in Hebrews that this land, the city, the temple, it's all spiritual. It's all on a higher plane than the types and shadows of physical Israel. Uh, that we find in the Hebrew scriptures, but that we'll have to say that for a, a future time. Okay, so with this restoration is the restoration of Israel, and we we look we've looked at a bunch of the places where God prophesied this regathering of Israel in the last days, and then we have the quote of uh, Deuteronomy 18, which Leslie's already uh, quoted again, and then and the warning that folks that don't listen to that prophet will be utterly destroyed. That's that's pretty blunt. It's pretty direct. And it's very historical. This is precisely what happened in the year 70. All of the Judeans who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah were just utterly destroyed. And then here's verse 24, the capstone. Yes, all the prophets from Samuel and those who followed, as many as have spoken... That's that's all of them. They also told of these days. So it's it's pretty clear there. But to accommodate dispensationalism and it's I don't know what it's like it's fake opposite of amillennialism, which is so popular today amongst folks that aren't dispensationalists. They both interpret these days that Peter is talking about as. All of the days beginning there at Pentecost and continuing on until the end of the physical universe, which is a pretty broad swath of time, wouldn't you say? I'd say. And this has been bought hook, line, and sinker by virtually every Protestant church in America, that these days that the prophets spoke about, you know, uh, cover 2,000 years and counting so that you can continue to apply the prophecies to current events and be proven wrong over and over and over again, you know, from from the Tsar of Russia in 1916 to uh, Mussolini in the 1920s to Stalin to Adolf Hitler, you know, to Saddam Hussein a few years ago, and now probably the president of Iran, you know, I don't know. But they just keep trying to say that we're in the last days right now. And it's, you know, Gary DeMar wrote a book, Last Days Madness. I mean, it's just it's just lunacy. Peter's not talking about that bizarre concept. He's talking about their lifetime. He's talking about the first century. He's talking about the days in which those people lived who were listening to him right there on the Temple Mount. Those are the days that the prophets spoke about. Those days. 
those are the last days of Israel that we see described over and over in all the Hebrew scriptures. Moses, he made that prophecy in Deuteronomy 31 and 32. In your last days, you, you will there will arise a twisted and perverse generation that will commit a crime so heinous that there will be no forgiveness for it. I mean, that's that's talking about the days of Christ and the apostles. So, again, it's very we see a consistency all through Acts showing the progressive fulfillment of all of the prophecies related to the restoration of Israel in the creation of the spiritual Israel, the spiritual body of Christ. And we'll we'll get to see this more and more as we go through. That Mark, he, did, you, did you read yeah. verse 26? Well, I haven't commented on uh, 25 20, or 26 yet. Okay. But Leslie read them a little while ago. You are the sons of the prophets. And I, I think what Peter's saying here is that you... The prophets were speaking to you. You are the heirs of the prophets. These prophecies were written for your benefit. You you know, they were addressed to uh, Israel and later to Judah, Judea, and you are the people upon whom these things have fallen. You're also the sons of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, in your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed which goes back to Genesis 12, the favorite verse in Israel. We were given these little book bags by some tour group when we were over there, and they have Genesis 12:3 printed right on the back of the, these little book bags. They're all advertisements that the land was given to Israel. But that's not what Peter's talking about here. This covenant that God made, with Abraham in your seed shall all the families of this be blessed. That's going to be fulfilled in their lifetime, in their generation. And later in Paul's writings, he's going to make the case. He said seed as in one, not seeds as in many, because the seed which came through the nation of Judah was Jesus Christ. So they're part of this remnant that brought the Messiah into the world. And that's how all the families of the earth will be blessed because they are going to be all gathered into this restored, reconstituted Israel. And again, we'll see that develop dramatically uh, in the chapters to follow here in, in the book of Acts. But unto you first, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. And this is This is the sequence. Remember back in Acts 1, Christ told them, when they asked, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel right now? He said, it's not for you to know the specific appointed times, but the Holy Spirit will come upon you, which has just happened in Acts 2, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth. The gospel had to come to the Judean people first. When Jesus was in his fleshly body, he said he was focusing on the lost sheep of Israel, and he didn't spend any time outside the areas where the Judean people lived. They had the urgency to receive the message first, and this is what Peter's saying, because they had this judgment that had already been pronounced on them that would fall within one generation. So they had to be part of the new exodus 
that is being announced here, come out, my people, from among them, or you'll be utterly destroyed. The Judeans had a sense of urgency about this that didn't apply to all of these other groups. So the risen Christ has been exalted, and he is giving them the gift of forgiveness of sins through the gospel, through repentance and baptism and so on, so that they can be saved from that twisted and perverse generation that was in control of Judea at that time. So that's the simple announcement of Peter. The, the restoration of Israel has begun. We can see it so consistently from the beginning of Acts right down here to the end of chapter 3. The message has to go to the Judean people first, and it will continue now. It'll start expanding outside of Jerusalem, and then we'll see God's plan being carried out perfectly uh, in the chapters to follow. All right, your final comments from anyone then on chapter 3. Well done. All right, well, thanks, Mark. Another good lesson, and we'll look forward to coming back next week, starting chapter 4. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast, and please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.